This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. When I think of the story of the lynching of Timothy Coggins, I think of the story of segregation and race in America, that this is a murder that happens because a black man was talking to a white woman. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. I'm Wesley Lowry, W-E-S-L-E-Y. Lowry is L-O-W-E-R-Y. Yeah, and I'm just a journalist. Wesley Lowry is more than just a journalist. He's a fantastic storyteller and a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. And Lowry has written a painfully intimate portrait about a family searching for justice in rural Georgia decades after a young man was murdered. When I think of the Timothy Coggins story, I think of the failure of the government to procure justice for Timothy Coggins, a black man who's, who's been victimized. And, and I think of a story of uh, generational trauma that you had family members who now decades later were still harmed by this crime committed against the Coggins family who now were, were hauled into uh, court to see someone finally be brought to justice. And meanwhile, the families of the two men who were convicted of this themselves having to grapple with Uh, what happens. I think of a story that reminds us that our history isn't so far in the past. I think often we have a sanitized understanding or, or we believe that the worst of our past is so far behind us. And yet we still have people walking in the streets today guilty of some of the most heinous crimes ever committed in our country. Families still directly victimized by those crimes and law enforcement agencies that have still failed to address them, um, in part because of the race and backgrounds of the victims. Let's just start with setting the scene. This is 1983, Griffin, Georgia. What are the people like in this town? So Griffin, Georgia is rural Georgia. Uh, For folks who are aware of the state of Georgia, if you start in Atlanta and start driving in basically any direction, Uh, About 45 minutes from there, you're in a place that's pretty rural, very white, historically relatively poor, kind of a farming town. Not nearly as diverse as the big cities, but as is the case across most of the rural South, you've got black communities and you've got white communities. What were people doing for a living in 1983? In in 1983, Griffin was still a, a relatively poor 
place. Now, th- now, this is a town where you would have had a fair number of people who are working as hired hands, be it working out in the fields, be it working on jobs, hauling lumber, that this was very much kind of an agricultural environment in Griffin. As is always the case in rural places with agricultural economies, you have more well-off people who own the land being (laughs) developed, um, and then you have the people who are working for them. And and so you see a lot of this. There is a fair amount of relatively impoverished people who are just kind of salt of the earth, school bus drivers. And this was a relatively lower to lower middle class socioeconomic town and city full of both poor white people as well as poor black people. You know, what is their sort of story, the the Coggins family story? Big black family living in Griffin, Georgia. Not particularly well off, but also not the poorest of the poor. One of these large families with lots of cousins and aunts and uncles, and no one's quite sure how everyone's related to each other, but they're all related (laughs) to each other, and have lived in Griffin for several generations. You know, Timothy is one of the children at the time, right, among the youngest generation of the Cogginses. And so he's got a number of sisters, other cousins, and, and at the time he's about 23 years old, known widely around town as being extremely outgoing, always out at the bars and the clubs, was someone who his family knew would sometimes disappear for days at a time, not because he disappeared, but because he was crashing on someone's couch. Kind of a social butterfly who was known very widely throughout town. He was close with his family, with his mom, obviously. Yeah, certainly. I mean, close with his family. Was he working? What was he doing? My understanding is that Timothy Coggins was working, you know, kind of a set of odd jobs. Still a kid in his kind of early 20s. So he was working when when he could find work, wasn't when he, when he wasn't, and otherwise was just kind of living life and enjoying himself. So what happens when trouble starts to happen? Like, lay out that key night, whatever we think was the impetus for this. It's disputed what exactly the impetus was. But what we know is that Timothy had been, among his kind of dalliances, had been talking with a young white woman. And that young white woman was the on-again, off-again girlfriend of a man who who Timothy Coggins had known loosely, possibly via drug deals or just kind of known from around town. You know, Tim's family and some of his friends had warned him about this, that, you know, this is 1983, a time where across Lots of the country, interracial relationships are becoming much more commonplace, but in a lot of pockets of the country, there was still a lot of hostility. You know, Tim Coggins has been told this would be something that was okay in Atlanta, but here in Griffin, you got to be really careful. There had been a series of back and forths between Timothy Coggins and Frankie Gephardt, a man who worked in the lumber yards and was kind of a regular in one of the white trailer parks in Griffin. And they had had a few kind of terse interactions, one around what the Gepharts would later describe as a drug deal that went awry, others around this question of whether or not Timothy Coggins was carrying on with Frankie Gebhardt's girlfriend. And so that, to our knowledge now, is, is what kind of sets in motion the events that lead to Timothy Coggins' death. They were not keeping this secret, right? Timothy and and Frankie Gephardt's girlfriend. The, the beginning of this story really takes place in a bar or a club or, or some sort of establishment in Griffin. The story begins in a lot of ways in The People's Choice, which was a popular club in Griffin. The clientele of The People's Choice was largely black. But on occasion, you would see white people in there as well, particularly white women. According to the kind of understanding of what happened. Timothy had been seen dancing with and carrying on with this woman. What exactly was going on between them is unknown. 
Timothy Coggins isn't around to tell us his story and, and neither is this woman. Uh, we, we don't have an extremely clear understanding of the extent to which there even was a relationship between the two of them or was it the beginnings of one? Was it something fully developed? They just hung out a few times. Even the suggestion that this might be going on was enough to to ultimately end up with a murder taking place. So what happens? He's with this woman at the club and they're dancing and they're getting some attention. What we believe happened, now knowing everything of the story, what prosecutors say happened, is that Frankie Gebhardt and his brother-in-law show up at the club one night, ask to talk to Timothy Coggins. They pull him out of the club and, and put him in a truck and drive him off to a field where they more or less beat and torture him, drag him from the back of a truck um, and then ultimately leave his body in this field pretty severely mutilated. The thought here was that this was a lynching that was carried out in very personal terms because of the insult that Frankie Gebhardt and Bill Moore, his brother-in-law, perceived at the idea that this young Black man would be flirting with, would be talking to a woman who they believed belonged to them. Do you think that's the case, or do you think this was a little bit more of Gephardt's contention that it was more of a drug deal gone wrong? It sounds like he was really stepping back from the racism part of this. Is that right? You don't typically carve an X in someone's chest because they ripped you off on some weed. Violent crimes that are that brutal are typically done for personal reasons. This is overkill. Certainly. If he committed this crime, it seems very unlikely that it would have been purely for economic reasons. So he is dragged and then... He's dragged behind the truck, and when his body's found, there's an X, similar to the Confederate battle flag that's been carved into his chest. And so, again, uh, Timothy Coggins' body has been pretty severely mutilated. This was not just a murder. This was not just a shooting. This was something that investigators who visited the crime scene, investigators who looked at the evidence here, saw as something being remarkably personal, remarkably brutal, and the type of killing that is meant to send a message. I remember reading about the story of James Byrd, Jasper, Texas, and I'm from Texas, who was an older gentleman, black, who was dragged behind a truck, I believe, down a road for quite a long time. And it was so brutal. Our history includes no lack of examples of extremely brutal, extremely personal crimes committed by white Americans when they believe that black Americans are stepping out of place or stepping out of line. When a black man like Timothy Coggins steps out of line, when he does something that is offensive to the white supremacist norms of the South, which is that as a black man, he shouldn't be talking to a white woman, they set out to show him that he doesn't have the right to do that and his life is taken. A large percentage of the lynchings of black men in our history have been specifically about the suggestion that that black man has in some ways had a sexual relationship with a white woman, be it the accusation that there was a sexual assault, in many cases made up allegations, in other cases consensual relationships that are then framed as such because in the white man's belief it's impossible for a white woman to have desired a black man that way. So it must have been coercive. It must have been an assault. And so, again, what we see with Timothy Coggins is, frankly, a remarkably unremarkable story. It's what happens in our history time and time again. So let's go back to the story. How is Timothy discovered in 1983? He has been brutalized, he's been murdered. Remind me, where has he been left? How do we find him? So Timothy Coggins has been brutalized and, and his body, in a lot of ways, torn to shreds. And he's been left out in this field 
beneath this large tree that was kind of colloquially known as the hanging tree in town, kind of out in the middle of nowhere between these two fields. And a group of local residents, including a young man, are out hunting and stumble across his body. Call the police, call the sheriff's office. Before long, the the body out there is identified as belonging to Timothy Coppins. The police go and talk to his family about this, I'm assuming. I mean, how does this news spread across this town? They were having real difficulty identifying Timothy Coppins. They weren't sure who he was. I remember his sister telling me that when she was first showed the photo by an officer who had shown up to to ask around. She pretended not to recognize him. She said, I don't know who that is, but she knew immediately that it was Tim. They identified Tim as the person who was killed, launched an investigation into who had killed him and why, but pretty quickly closed that investigation and just kind of moved on. Well, let's go back just slightly. Why did his sister deny knowing that that this was her brother? Well, I I think that very often when we're confronted with things that are difficult, that we can't fathom, we deny them. How often when a mother is told that their son is killed, does she say, no, no, no? That we understand that to accept something as being true means it is true, that it's happened, that we have to accept it. And so, you know, my impression from my conversations were that in those moments, Timothy's sister subconsciously just wanted a few more minutes of not having to grapple with the truth. And you have to think that this was their fear, knowing that he was out with this white woman. I'm sure this was just something in their minds. They didn't think was possible, but but certainly was a possibility. Look, I think it's every Black family's fear. There, there's always been this kind of concern. Certainly, you think in this case, you know, given the fact that Tim had been talked to, had been warned, they'd been having conversations about it, this is certainly the type of thing they feared could happen. Not that he was doing anything wrong, but that some other person would be offended by it and would do something wrong to him. Certainly in cases of sexual assault, we talk about blaming the victim, and and that would be the case here, too, saying, well, he shouldn't have gone out with a white woman. He was sort of tempting, but knowing that this is a possibility that it could happen, but that would be blaming the victim. I mean, Tony Coppins was murdered. You know, there's not a legal justification because you slept with someone who, who people don't want you to sleep with. Maybe. And by the way, I mean, we don't even know. <laughs> and by the way, we don't even know if he did that. Right. Like it's it's not even this isn't even about a world where we know for a fact that a thing had happened or was happening. It was purely about in America as a black man, the idea that you would carry on with or sleep with a white woman is has always been a thing that could get you killed. Tell me about the investigation or the lack of it. Well, there was almost no investigation initially. The sheriff's department locally made a few phone calls, drove around, canvassed. But According to the records and what we understand of them, after just about a week or two, the investigation was largely closed. Much to the frustration of the Coggins family, which began receiving threats, even as they pressed for more investigation. Tell me about the threats. What kind of threats? You know, Timothy Coggins' stepfather was a bus driver, and he had a decapitated dog left in the in the bus. There were <sighs> bricks thrown through the windows with notes saying, well, you're next, right? There was essentially an intimidation campaign that was run. The Coggins family had been pressuring the police to investigate this and to get justice. And a message was sent very clearly to them that they should drop this and leave things alone. And so what ultimately did happen is that the sheriff's department largely closed the investigation without having interviewed very many people and certainly without having gotten to the bottom of this. And so for decades, the murder of Timothy Coggins sat unsolved. 
Is this because people knew specifically that Frankie Gephardt and Bill Moore were involved, or was this the assumption that one of the white residents of Griffin, Georgia, was involved, and they didn't know who, and it didn't really matter because everybody needed to be protected? Well, you know, we'll never know for sure what the motivation for the investigators who didn't do their job in communities like Griffin in times like 1983 There was an expectation among the black community that if they were victimized, that the police would not take those crimes particularly seriously. How might that be compounded if the person believed to have committed the crime was white or friends or buddies with the sheriffs investigating or someone who was known around town? All of those are factors that could then add into it. You know, again, what's so difficult in a case like this one is all the things that we'll never know quite for sure. So is the Coggins family intimidated? Was it bricks through the window, the decapitated dog? What is their reaction to this closed investigation? To them, further solidifies what they already believed to be true, which was that their brother had been targeted and killed specifically for his race, and that now the people who had done it were targeting them telling them not to apply any pressure to make sure that those who committed this crime were not held accountable. And so again, I think it was deeply frustrating for the Coggins family. All of this, in many ways, was an exercise and a flexing of power, that we did what we did with impunity, and we're going to continue doing that. And we're going to remind you who has the power here and who's, who's in control here. And these are the people who are standing next door to them or standing right next to them in a grocery store. These are the people who are serving them food or own the gas station. It must have been terrifying for them to not know. And have to wonder. So this case doesn't go cold. This is just shut down completely. As far as the sheriff's department's concerned in Griffin, Georgia, this is done. It's closed and that's it. It was clear when these files were later reviewed that there was very little, if any, investigation done by the sheriffs early on, that they did not put in a good faith effort to figure out who had killed Timothy Coggins. As the case file sat open, as it sat in the cold cases file, it didn't seem like anyone else put in much of an effort, even as other investigators came back and and tried to look at it. That there would be an interview done here, an interview done there. So if we're sticking with the chronology here, what happens next? Is this a full almost 40 years and then something happens? I mean, how do we jump from 1983, two weeks and we're done? So just a few years ago, the case landed on the desk of a state investigator. In in the state of Georgia, cold cases, especially for felonies like murder, end up going to the state, to the GBI, the Bureau of Investigation, the State Bureau of Investigation. And their cold cases get recycled. They get cycled to different investigators every few months, with the hope being that every unsolved case that we have is constantly getting some level of fresh eyes. So this case ends up landing on the desk of a new investigator, a man named Jared Coleman. And as he starts looking through these files, he realizes that there are a lot of leads that haven't seemed to be addressed, that even in the initial case file, it was clear that these two men, Frankie Gebhardt and Bill Moore, were, were, were people who witnesses said they should talk to. And yet, it never seemed like they had been fully interviewed by police. In the years since, there had been a number of 
new witnesses who had come forward and said that at some point Frankie Gephardt had confessed to them of having committed this murder. Jailhouse witnesses, snitches, who were saying, hey, I'm incarcerated with this guy, and he's talking about how he killed this kid in 1983. And there were notations in the file, but they were never fully done. Agent Coleman goes, well, all right, let me try to interview Frankie Gephardt and Bill Moore. And when he gets to them initially, they deny having ever even heard of the murder of Timothy Coggins, which is something that raises a big red flag for him. This is a small rural community that Timothy Coggins' murder in 1983 had been the talk of the town for years. The idea that these two men who had been here forever, who lived just up the street from where this murder took place, it, it never quite passed the smell test. And so because of that, Agent Coleman began applying more pressure, doing more interviews, and ultimately tracking down more people. Now, let's pause. So Gephardt was in prison at some point. Is that right? Uh, he's in prison at many points. He was what they called a, a frequent flyer in the local courthouse. <laughs> okay. He'd get arrested for a drunken brawl or a, it, for sexually assaulting someone at a party or for mouthing off yeah. at a cop. Or, you know, he, he was someone who had a very long set of interactions with law enforcement. And so at various junctures, he was incarcerated, be it for a month or for a year or for six weeks or in jail awaiting trial for the latest charge. All, in all of those cases, he would have roommates and, and bunkmates and cellmates, people he knew, people he drank with when he was out. And he, he was known for having these massive trailer park parties and bashes that he would host. Frankie had, had been talking to a lot of people <laughs> over the course of the years about what he had done. Well, this goes back to your committing a crime with impunity. There was a woman who dated Frankie Gephardt who told police that he would beat her. And as he beat her, would tell her that if you don't get your act together, you're going to end up like that black kid in the ditch a few years ago. Except he didn't say black, I'm pretty sure. No, he did not. And, And so there was this sense that this was something that was openly discussed, openly talked about, that anyone who was in the know knew that Frankie Gephardt had been involved in this murder. That when Agent Colbin was reinvestigating, he went to one trailer in the trailer park, right? He's just canvassing. He's just trying to talk to anybody about, do you ever hear anything about this? And when he gets to one of the trailers and explains why he's there, the resident goes, oh, Frankie Gephardt killed that boy. Again, this was something that was just talked about openly. There wasn't a big mystery about what had happened. That for decades, an entire community of people knew who murdered Timothy Coggins. And it was the guy hosting the party up the street. The GBI agent, this must not have been an easy case for him. Sure. I mean, when I talked to Agent Coleman, my impression very much was that he sees this as his job. Right. At the end of the day, someone was murdered. This is the most serious crime you can commit against another human being. And he had a chance, he had an opportunity to solve. What message does it send about our justice system if someone can murder someone, brag about it, and never go to prison? And and I think that, you know, my impression from my conversations with Agent Coleman were that the more time he spent in this case, the more clear it became to him that law enforcement had failed previously. What about his mother, Timothy's mother? Timothy's mother, she she got sick in late 2015, early 2016, and had long before that kind of given up. The Coggins family had stopped talking a lot about what had happened to Timothy. It was too heavy. They still lived in the community, lived in the town. They all knew what happened. It was painful. 
And they all started trying to move on. In February 16, Timothy's mother, on her deathbed, had a premonition. She started declaring to Timothy's sister that they were going to find the person who killed Timothy. There was going to be justice, that she just knew this thing was going to happen. And Timothy's sister tells me later, she goes, you know, she just thought her mother was out of her mind. She was just talking, right? It's an end of life, and she's of a certain age, and she, fine, whatever. But sure enough, not too long after that, the Coggins family receives its first call from Agent Coleman, who said, hey, we've reopened the investigation. Wow. I think I know who did this. Let's get them this time. I bet that sparked a lot of prayer, <laughs> even more than usual after that. Oh, my goodness, right? You, you, have, you have to imagine. But you also, you also have to think about how hard it is for a family like theirs, right? It's been so many years. You've accepted that no one cared about your brother being murdered. You accepted that this wasn't going to get solved. No one cared about the threats you got. And now some new young investigator guy is trying to get your family all riled up that they're really going to solve it this time. And you have, to, you have to imagine that kind of understandably, there's a level of, like, all right, if you say so, Agent Coleman, sure, like, okay. Because there's such a risk and a vulnerability to, to believing, to getting your hopes up that there's going to be justice served. You've been disappointed on this for decades, for most of your life. And now you have to believe this voice on the other end of the phone telling you he's going to solve it this time. And so it's interesting to imagine what that must be like for the family, and then also for Agent Coleman and for the prosecutors, the pressure that puts on them. They must have been confident. They had to have been confident. Right now, you've got all of these people who are now saying, okay, we know that this is what happened. Physical evidence. Where are we with physical evidence? (laughs) When Agent Coleman first brought the potential charges here, he's got all of these witnesses, all who say, Frankie Gebhardt did this, Bill Moore did this, they confessed it to me, they confessed it here, I heard them over talking about it at a party, right? They bring the charges, but at the time, there's almost no physical evidence whatsoever. The entire case file has gone missing in the sheriff's department. The original police reports, the evidence, the tire tracks, the blood samples, that like anything you would need in the court of law doesn't exist. It's all gone. And among the things that had never been found had been the murder weapon. The knife, knowing, right? The knife that had been used to stab and to, and to carve into Timothy Coggins. Investigator Coleman is meeting with the prosecutors, and, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And they conclude, we got to find something that all of these witnesses, who themselves in many cases are criminals, are inmates who overheard Frankie Gephardt saying something. Correct. These are not choir boys and priests uh, <laughs> who, who are the witnesses, which, by the way, for folks who involve the criminal justice system, is very rarely the case. Right, right. Very few witnesses in criminal cases are are the priest to whom you just gave confession. Right. Criminals uh, hang out with criminals. There's uh, a shock. <laughs> sure. You're, you're in jail, and that's how you're in the same place as Frankie Gephardt for him to right. be explaining what had happened, right? And he probably mouthed off a lot in jail for credibility. You know, you're in jail. You're talking. You know, you're, you're trying to... Yeah, and part of it, because everyone's insecure. I mean, th- think about, you can't be more vulnerable than being in prison. You, none of, you don't have any rights. Somebody said that Gephardt said that I killed this black kid just for fun, right? Mm-hmm. Or it was something along those lines. Yeah, but yeah, but there was someone who testified in court that Gephardt had been kind of bragging about it. I, mm-hmm. I just did this and I missed the good old days and we could just do things like this and treat people however we wanted. And, and, and so... It frames it differently. Now, now meanwhile... Prosecutors are desperately searching for evidence. They get a warrant 
to go into Frankie Gephardt's trailer, hoping that maybe there's some evidence. They can't really find anything. They take all these knives out of his out of his house, hoping one of them might be the knife. None of them are the knife. Sixty knives, I think. And Frankie Gephardt is still bragging about it. There's a jailhouse witness, a jailhouse snitch, who tells the investigators that, oh, Frankie came to me the other day, and he was bragging that you took 60 of his knives, but you didn't get the right one, because the real knife is down the, down the hole in the well, back oh, behind his trailer. What an idiot. <laughs> and so the... Thank goodness it, criminals aren't smart, many of them. He had said this before. There was at least one other witness who had suggested that perhaps the evidence might be back in the well. No. But there was an issue for prosecutors that the well was really close to Frankie Gephardt's trailer. There was no way for them to go down into it without actually destroying the trailer itself, which they don't really have a right to do just because someone's locked up or you're suspected them of a crime doesn't mean you can go knock their house down. And so they had a logistical issue. They were convinced that crucial evidence was in the bottom of this well, but the well was too close to the trailer and they didn't know what they were going to do. So they set out trying to find different ways to get into this well. And finally, they find this hydrovac company that can basically blast water into the well and then suck it all up and bring with it all the debris. And so they power wash the well, nice. more or less, take out all these tanks of water and dirt and debris, dump them out, and then dig through it. Oh my God, that must have taken forever. <laughs> Days, and, and then they got to go through all of it. But as they go through it, and it's and it's literally years of trash that's been thrown down there, debris. But among the things they find are a broken knife, mm. a Adidas shoe, believed to be the same kind that Timothy Coggins was wearing the night he disappeared, and a T-shirt that was torn up and seemed to have slash marks and blood marks <sighs> on it. That after all of those years, it appeared that the evidence from Timothy Coggins' murder had been sitting in the bottom of that well for all of those decades in the back of Frankie Gephardt's trailer, and all anyone had to do was go looking for it. Could they pull any forensic evidence off of that, any blood or anything? It's probably Nothing degraded. That, it was all degraded at that yeah. point. And again, I would remind you, they didn't have any blood of Timothy Coggins anymore at this point. They'd lost all their original evidence. And so even if they could get something off of that evidence, it, it, they didn't have anything to match it to. Hmm. But to my knowledge, there wasn't anything particularly forensic they could get off of either the knife, the shirt, the shoes, that this physical evidence was still in some ways circumstantial, but just so happened to fit the exact circumstances that were the prosecutor's theory. This was always going to be a difficult case. Everyone who they could get on the stand themselves was a felon, a right. white supremacist in a prison gang. So it's easy to shoot holes in all of those people. Absolutely. Of course. Of course. Attorney. And then you've got a bunch of physical evidence that's been sitting in the bottom of a well for X number of years. You can't subject to the same level of forensic analysis that because we don't have Timothy Coggins' blood, you can't say, well, his blood was found on the shirt. Well, we don't know what his blood was anymore. And so, so there was always some real difficulty in this case. Now, these people who came forward, these snitches, were they asking for something in return? That is one way to kind of establish their credibility is if they're just kind of going, listen, I just want to report this. I don't need a lesser sentence. I don't want any special privileges. Were they looking for something, do you think, some of these folks? Some of them had given their statements in exchange or in in seeking some type of leniency, be it mm -hmm. in their own sentence or parole or something like that. But what was also true is that so many of these people had come forward at different junctures in time, right? It seemed that everyone who had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Frankie Gephardt walked away understanding that he had murdered this kid. <laughs> and so no matter what their various motivations were, <laughs> these were consistent. not— consistent. 
these were not people who prosecutors and police sought out going, well, did Frankie ever tell you about the, in many cases, these were people who themselves came forward and said, let me tell you about this thing that I've been told. What was true was just the consistency and the breadth. This just wasn't a secret, right? I mean, so in addition to the jailhouse snitches, you had local residents, you had ex-girlfriends of the men who said they talked about it. You had people who had been at parties with them who drunkenly overheard them talking about it. They have all of these witnesses who are testifying. They have the evidence gathered. They place him under arrest. Where is Bill Moore in this whole thing? Did, did Bill put his hands on Timothy Coggins, or is it specifically Gephardt that they're focusing on? Both men are charged with the murder. They don't charge Frankie as if he was particularly worse than Bill. The idea was that they were these are two men who are relatively inseparable. They're best friends. Brothers-in-law, is that right? Yeah, they're brothers-in-law. Bill, I believe, is married to Frankie's sister. Long-time best friends who are both there that night, who both commit the crime, are both charged with it. Gephardt comes up first. His trial happens first. Gephardt's still denying it. They find the physical evidence in the well. They take him to trial where person after person after person testifies that they heard him bragging about this murder. Ultimately, the jury comes back with a guilty verdict and concludes that Frankie Gephardt did do this. He did murder Timothy Coggins, a man that he needed to be held responsible for. Ultimately, Gephardt is sentenced to life in prison. Bill Moore takes a deal for a 20-year sentence. Plead, agrees to plead guilty. And so both of these guys, after decades, end up facing the types of sentences they would have faced from the beginning had police aggressively pursued this case. What is the reaction of their family, of the men's family, Gephardt and Moore? Are they outraged? They thought their uncle and their father, they, they thought they were being harassed. Some of these family members had never heard of this murder. And one day the cops show up at your father's house, your uncle's house, and say, he murdered a kid 30 years ago. You might reasonably go, I don't know about that. What do you mean? I've never heard of this. What are you talking about? My uncle killed a kid in 83? And, And so there was a real skepticism. There was a real frustration. And there was a real pain. I believe it was Bill Moore's daughter sat in trial for each day and was just heartbroken, was upset, broke down in tears after Frankie Gephardt's conviction. You know, her uncle has been convicted and sentenced to life in prison. And she's having to grapple with this idea that maybe this man who I know and who I love, who is my family, murdered someone. So it sounds like they might have believed the evidence then. It's no longer that your uncle or your dad has been accused of a thing. It's that they've been convicted of. Right. A jury sent them to prison, right? You, even no matter what you think about what you're looking at in front of you, you have to grapple with this idea that your uncle, your father, your brother is now a convicted murderer. Is there relief with the Coggins family? There is some relief. When I've written with and about families related to people who've been victimized, one of the big things very often is this just feeling of the unknown, not knowing who the person is, that they're out there, different theories still popping into your head, and this feeling that your loved one was was victimized, was treated this way. Right. Oh, somebody's gotten away with something. You know, at the very least, there's a closure. They know who did it, and those people are are paying a price for it. Now, that doesn't bring Timothy back. It doesn't take away years of pain and frustration. But it does send a message to them that someone cared about Tim, cared enough to go track down the person who killed him and make sure he's sitting in prison. Where does this story fit in with you as a journalist and as a person who has to talk to these people about this incredible trauma, even though it happened 40 years ago? 
You know, I do a lot of work that involves talking to traumatized families. That involves talking to families who are related to people who've been victims in police shootings, in mass shootings, people who died in hurricanes or earthquakes or wildfires, that a big portion of the work that I do involves telling the stories of, of people who've lost someone. One of the things I try to do when possible, and it's one of the things that I think helped draw me to this story, was times when you can take a story from contemporary time and place it in concert and place it in conversation with our history. What does the story of Timothy Coggins's death tell us about who we have been as a country and what does it tell us about who we are today and therefore about who we can be? It happened not a century ago, but within many of our lifetimes. The Coggins family doesn't, doesn't get closure, doesn't receive justice. If the people of Griffin, Georgia and the people of Georgia broadly are unwilling to acknowledge what happened in the first place. And so I just, I think about that a lot, you know, because I think so much of the conversations we have in this country around issues of race are debates about how much we let ourselves look backwards. It's like, are we, are we talking about that stuff too much? Or shouldn't we just move on? Or shouldn't we, and like, to what extent, and how honestly should we talk about what was happening in the past, right? Or should we let it be what it is? Or we, and, and what I appreciate about this was that this was not a theoretical conversation. It's not a theoretical article. It's not some debate or some philosophical, like, no, 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 this is a story about a family that was wronged. As you think about that, when I read the story, I thought, is it okay, is it a positive that it happened? It took almost 40 years, but this, this happened. Or is it the negative, the, God, this took 40 years? What I appreciate about this story is that it's a story that does kind of, in some ways, have the, like, movie Disney happy ending, right? And then they lock up the bad guy, the family gets justice— but it's impossible to sit here and beat your chest and be excited and happy about the fact that after 40 years, they arrested a murderer, right? right? That it's, and I think that that speaks to the reality of these issues. Even when we go back and do the work to address and resolve an injustice from the past, that injustice still happened. The reality is when we let something like this happen in our society in the first place, there's no putting the genie all the way back into the bottle, no matter what we do. The Coggins family will still lose, still lost Timothy. Where does this fit into the story of Griffin, Georgia? Is this a little bit of redemption? I think that Griffin, Georgia still needs to determine and decide where it thinks it fits in. And what I mean by that is that I've covered enough stories, especially stories that have any historical weight to them across the South or in small suburban communities, where the communities themselves are very torn about the legacy of those stories. That for parts of the black community, very often it's a feeling of, we have to remember that this thing happened here. And for part of the white community, it becomes a, it becomes a source of shame. Everyone's going to think we're all this way. It's up to Griffin, I think, to decide. And so it's going to be really interesting to see what happens five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out. We know that we will know this story. And I'm very proud to whatever extent I've been able to contribute to the story of Timothy Coggins' death being known. I'm glad I was able to help write it down. It, yet it remains to be seen if this is something that causes Griffin to shrink in embarrassment or, like the prosecutor and the cops in this case, lean in and embrace and reckon with what that history means and how it challenges us to be better. On the next episode of Wicked Words... 
One of the saddest things about this case is that sort of the best thing about Joe was turned against him. You know, he couldn't just have been this warm guy who, yes, he also liked to dress well and a few other things. Um, This meant that he was gay. In the 1980s, small town Texas, the insinuation that a high school principal, someone who's around teenage boys all the time, is gay, uh, it was poisonous. It was completely toxic. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 